Here we go, rejecting the screen, the going ISO edition as we do every Thursday. Noah Kozlov out here on the East Coast. Out West is Adam Stanko, and further out West is Robert Sacre, who is a two-time first-team All-WCC at Gonzaga, four years in the NBA, the 60th overall pick in the 2012 draft, spent two prolific years in Japan, including a dunk contest but that we'll get to. He's also the co-host of Believe in the Zags with Jack Ferris, so make sure you subscribe, download, rate, review that. So, Robert, how did you get nines in that dunk contest? Just being me. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'll be honestly, I don't know. I uh, It was a long night the night before, and yards and shit. I didn't really want to go into dunk competition in the first place, but they had me out there because it was the all-star game, and I never say no, so that's my maybe that's my problem in the first place. <laughs> well, you agreed to come on this podcast, so we're appreciative that uh, that you always say yes. So, so thank you, uh, Rob. I know I know you were born in Louisiana. Your dad played in the mm-hmm. NFL, Greg Lafleur, but but you moved to Vancouver when you were around seven or eight years old. So mm-hmm. I'm just curious, as a kid, what what was the adjustment like going from Louisiana to Vancouver, Canada? Um, there's more than just black and white people. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you see, like, it was an, an eclectic, uh, it was just eclectic and diverse. And, um, I'm very grateful to be able to say I'm from Canada and from Vancouver and also Louisiana, but it was just a, it was a unique, unique situation to be able to, you know, go up there and see the world as, a Canadian, I guess. And, uh, you know, it was crazy. They had to put me in ESL. English is my second language. They had to put me in ESL when I moved up there because they couldn't understand what I was saying. <laughs> because of the Louisiana what? accent? Yes, I kid you not. <laughs> and part, part, and part, and part of my laughter, but how old were you? Seven. I want to say seven, but it was thick. It was thick. I mean, like... With I the swamp people? Count- uh, wait, like just like swamp people? It was just yes, like swamp people. Were you were you a confident kid though, or what did that do to you? Uh, I think it made me have to. I, so being tall, I always had always stood out. So no matter what, I I felt like either I embrace who I am and embrace being like tall and you know having an accent or whatever, and or just you know just be that gawky tall guy that doesn't want everyone to stare at him but you're gonna get stared at anyway so what's the point you know so you're playing rugby but you sort of came up in the time when canadian hoops started to explode too so what what drew you to basketball there in in canada uh vancouver grizzlies were there at the time and i just fell in love with the grizzlies i still have i remember my mom and i went to a lakers game and I was just more ecstatic about they had three LSU Tigers on the court at the time. Then, then it was a Lakers game or anything like that. We had Stromile Swift, Mahmoud Abdul-Rauf, and uh, uh, my man Shaq. Shaq was playing at the time. So three LSU Tigers, that was pretty much my biggest because both my parents went to LSU. That was my dream school growing up. So I um, – I just remember really embracing going to all the, the games. And I, I remember getting the ticket signed from a bunch of players after the game. And I still have that ticket today. Hmm. Anybody say no? 
Um, no, I we were at a restaurant. Eric Strickland, with Eric Strickland, um, Damian Jones, and who was the other one? I can't remember the other player at the time. But they were super cool. You know, I was I was maybe nine at the time, so they were they were open to sign, and that was cool, man. So from then on, I realized how much of an impact maybe. I still have that ticket, whether they're big name guys or not. I just remember that. And I just know that's why I try to take time to sign people's stuff because someone did that for me, and I'll never forget that. It's pretty awesome memory. So at what point did you realize that, that you were pretty good at this game? When I was trash and I figured out I needed to get better. And so I was like, and you know what, I, guys, I need I, – I, I'll be real with you. I wasn't, I didn't take basketball really seriously until I was like 11. And then I was like, you know what? I can do something. I, I want to, I want certain things in life and I can do something with my height and my potential to be good. So I tried to take advantage and I just worked at it and worked at it. And I kind of, I don't really look at the accolades. The accolades just come with working hard. So I just, just focused on getting better and then, naturally things started coming towards you if you just work hard and you have a goal things will come towards you now you don't expect what they are but they just gravitate towards hard work how tall were you at 11 six feet i remember being six two at the age of 12 because i was looking at my mom at eye to eye oh and your mom was six two yeah she played lsu to the to the bingo or whatever bengal at LSU when she played. Okay. She played at LSU. When was the first time that you, I'm always curious with big guys, especially because they often, I mean, I saw Tyson Chandler in high school, Dwight Howard in high school. A lot of times big guys get bored because there really isn't, isn't anybody to match up against them. So they just try to start working on other parts of their game during games and just almost get, get bored with dominating the game. But what, when was the first time you went up against somebody that really physically overmatched you and you said oh okay this is this is just different my freshman year in high school um scott morrison was our, at our rival high school he was six nine and he had committed to portland state and so i remember to go in the provincials there was only one team that came out of our region and we had to face them and we went into like uh, it was a bad it, the gyms were standing room only it was crazy and he got the best of me at that time when I was a freshman. So I, from then on, I told myself I'd never let that happen again. All right, so then you get to Gonzaga. Give me a story of, because I know what Mark Few puts off to the public. I mean, I, I know that, that, that he was a great guy, but I know that what he puts off in the public is very calm and very measured. But I also heard that he can flip out on his guys. So give me a story of Mark Few flipping out on you. His flip out isn't really like a screaming MFing you or any of that like that that old school coaching method. Now he'll say something smart. He'll he'll say something real slick to kind of get under your skin. But other than that, he's not really a yellow screamer. Like his whole thing is just don't be a victim. He hates that victim mentality, and he always says don't make things bigger than what they seem. Don't make molehills into mountains. And I, I can remember from day one at practice, that's the biggest thing he pushes is don't be a victim. You want to always be the aggressor. 
on your most recent podcast with Jack Ferris, I was listening and you guys talked about when you, when you were going through setbacks on the injury side, when you were at Gonzaga and just what that was like and, and going back to, uh, I think it was Jack's house there in Spokane and, and, um, crushing some forties because forties because you're just pissed and just like why me and kind of have that victim mentality in that sense of like this shit sucks but at the same time you gotta you just gotta persevere and you gotta find that like it sucked and I, for me what was so stressful during that that time in my life was I had worked so hard to get back. And then I re-break my foot again to the point where the first time I could put a little weight on it, but then, and walk with like a, a stress fracture. But then the second time I, I was in crutches forever, it had a, it was just a pain in the butt. So I, from then on, I just said, I'll, I'll, I'll never, I'll always keep working and I'll always stay in shape and I'll always, I'll never take a day off because, you know, that's, that's what happens if you do you something goes wrong you'll break you'll break something so it's kind of instilled me to consistently work hard and never try to take things off so so given that frustration let's go to draft night what were your expectations going in i was realistic my agent and i were kind of realistic about being in the second round now i didn't expect to be at the the end of the second round, but hey, like I tell everybody, best for last. You know, nothing, nothing is sweeter than hearing your name be called. And I was able to be sixty people out of whatever millions of people, you know. So I'm very blessed, and I'm very grateful to have that opportunity to say, you know, I was drafted. My name was called, and it was called by one of the most prestigious organizations and franchises in, in the world. Right, and and Adam Silver called your name, right? Yeah, exactly. The commissioner yeah, right, called right. my name. Right, right, right. The the deputy commissioner at the time, now commissioner, called your name. What was the what was the scene like when you heard your name called? Where were you? Who was around you? So I went down to Louisiana, and because New Orleans wanted to do a a, a, a workout and look over some guys and. Um, they said they had just picked up that draft pick just to see guys. And so I, I did my thing and I, I felt like I had an amazing workout. It was the day before the draft. And I, that's the one team I really wanted to play for is New Orleans because that's where all my family lived and everything like that. So that was my dream job. So I was like, you know what? After doing, I don't know, 13 different workouts, I was like, you know what? This is it. I'll, I'll go to this last one, and then my wife and my mother and my my oldest son, he was a year at the time, he flew down, they all flew down, and we all stayed at my grandparents' house, and we just, I think we just cooked, we had some, uh, some fried chicken, and we just cooked, and had some crown oil, and just enjoyed the night, and whatever it may be, may be, and, uh, you know, we just sat around, and when they started listing off all the European players at the end of the, the the, the draft, I was like, you know what? I've sat here for four hours. Might as well just see who they call. I didn't even work out with the Lakers. Hmm. So I was like, let me just see who, who who gets the last pick. Why not? I've made it this far. Boom. My name got called. So 
I'm very fortunate. I'm very blessed to have this opportunity and to play and be able to see the world the way I had. It's been cool, man. What a great experience. Who who from the Lakers organization was the uh, first to reach out? Uh, John Black, the T.I. guy. And what did he, he say? He called me and he's like, hey, you're going to have some media call you. Uh, just be prepared to answer whatever questions and we're very happy and excited to have you and we'll see we'll see you soon and boom my phone went I didn't, even, <laughs> I didn't even have time to even look at my phone after that he just started blowing up oh my goodness Fred. oh my goodness all that type of stuff but you know I, it was I can remember that moment like it was yesterday I can't believe Kobe called you right away that's wild yeah exactly so, <laughs> All right, we'll get into more Lakers stories in a moment, but talking about jobs, when you start your hiring process, you might have a lot of questions. Good applicants, education, experience, and how will you know if you made the right hires? Just like a draft pick, Indeed is here to help. Millions of great candidates use Indeed every day to find their next opportunity. You can post a job in minutes, use screener questions to help create your short list of applicants, and fast also add skills to test your job posts so you can be confident in your applicants' abilities. Their library of more than 50 skills Test ranges from industry-specific skills like accounting to general aptitude tests like critical thinking. Probably not post moves. Indeed gives you the smart tools to make hiring decisions quickly and to be confident that you're making the right hire for your team. Post your job today, indeed.com slash locked on and get a free sponsored job upgrade on your first posting. Indeed.com slash locked on. Terms, conditions, and exclusions apply. Offer valid through March 31st, 2020. So you get to Los Angeles. Take us through day one. I'm just kind of overwhelmed. Like, here it is. This is what you worked so hard for. Let's, let's make this happen. And I, I was on a one-year deal, and I remember going into the locker room and introducing myself to Steve Nash. And he was the coolest guy. I, man, I had so many great teammates. I Through my career, even Cole, like he was, he was fun to be able to say I played with him. You know what I mean? But, like, I got to play with Nash, Dwight, uh, Powell, Metal World Peace, Antoine Jameson, Chris Duhon, Steve Blake, Chris Kamen. I think the list can keep going, and I'm just, like, what an opportunity to be able to. Earl Clark, I know I'm missing guys, too. Earl Ford, Earl Jordan Hill. Man, think about that, man. You got to see all those type of guys, like Hall of Famers. You got to play with them. What an unreal situation. How do you balance? I mean, they guys talk about, you know, playing with Jordan and, and getting caught just stuck watching him play. And guys talk about the same thing with Kobe and LeBron. Like one of the toughest parts with being their teammates is you you sometimes find yourself starstruck. But I mean, the Lakers squad that you joined, you talk about with Nash and Kobe and, and Dwight. Like when you're practicing and certainly in games, like did you catch yourself at moments just just getting caught watching some of these guys and, and the fact that you're out there on the floor with them? My first ever game, I remember it vividly, a preseason game, first ever game, Dwight's back was out, and he they were like, Rob, you're starting. And I was like, well, what? Like, okay, cool, right on. And <laughs> I come out, and I, I come out, and, I look to my right, and there's Kobe and Nash, and I look to my left, and there's Powell and Meta, and I'm 
I'm right there getting ready to do the jump ball. What a what how else can you ask for a better experience? No, it's crazy. No, I mean that, yeah, that whole that I whole thing around, is crazy. I, yeah, I looked around like what is going this is um I'm like, I better get my shit together because <laughs> I, I I can't look like no sky I can't look like the worst one on the court right now, you know? But is you know so that was that was maybe the most surreal moment of uh playing for sure. Yeah, but that whole but that whole preseason. So, all right. So you get drafted, then Nash arrives, Dwight arrives. You guys go zero and eight in the preseason. So, what was what was the vibe like during that preseason? I think, and I give credit to Coach Brown. He's trying to. Um, he wanted the ball. The offense was kind of put in. He wanted the ball to have um, multiple touches. Because we did have so many guys. So it, he wanted everyone to touch the ball, but at the same time, the NBA, only a certain few can touch the ball, so it, 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 makes it, uh, it makes it really difficult, right? And when you have that star-studded, like no one, the Warriors are, no one like, that's a weird combination because you don't see that many guys that are that unselfish on one team. And not many superstars on one team. And I'm not saying my teammates were selfish, but they were accustomed to all getting the ball and being the men at their team. So Mike Brown, I think, wanted to embody everyone getting touches and everybody. And, and people don't realize that was, what, almost that was eight years ago. The game was still a slow-style basketball back then. It's not what it is now, right? Like, the game, the speed of the game is so much faster, and like it's one shot and go up. But back then, it was like, okay, we're running sets, triangle type field. We need, you know, touches from different spots on the court. Blah 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 blah. That's hard to that's hard to work with when you have that star studded of a team. Stories were written about about you being Kobe's teammate. You had said that you didn't even really, you didn't even really talk to him early on and in, in uh if you hear my son screaming in the background so <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. i'm sure you can relate as a as a father of three. Oh, uh, i've been there my friend got him he's going bananas <laughs> in the other room right now um <laughs> he is hudson hudson he is, is not played is, is not pleased with some of mike brown's decisions back in 2000 yeah yeah not he was pleased. he's clearly not pleased <laughs> you're you're cool man hey I've been there, man. You just want to know what the child abuse laws are so you can get away with something. <laughs> I read the Kobe stuff that you had said that early on, you said, I didn't even talk to the man um, in your first season. You said, I think the first two things I said to him were ball and outlet. Those were basically the only thing, two things I said to him the first two weeks of training camp. And then, obviously, there's, there's well-documented that you guys developed a relationship. So how did it go from... What precipitated the idea that you guys then would become friends after after not really speaking much early on your rookie year? Realizing he's a human being. Just realizing he has flaws and he's just as human as you and I. And granted, now, when and in his mind, he doesn't feel like he is, you know, but that's what makes him so great. But at the same time, you got to look at him like he can do these supernatural things, but he also is human. And 
you know, sometimes I, I felt I was, I had a good enough relationship where I could talk to him and I could call him out on certain things and, you know, and, and he could take it not as a, he, we just had a cool relationship, man. And like, uh, I'm glad and grateful to be able to say I played with him. And I think, uh, looking back, you know, uh, you are starstruck when you immediately see the Mamba, you know, everything is the Mamba, right? But at the same time, when you realize, you know, you put he puts on the pants just like you and I. So that kind of brings you back to normal. He gets sick. He has good days. He has bad days. He's just like, he's just a human being. So I think that's really what boiled it down for me that I, I was cool with him. Because I was like, man, I would talk mad smack to him all the time. <laughs> Call him old man and all that shit all the time. <laughs> It's, well, he's he's infamous for Rob. He's infamous for for really not going out much. I mean, that's what guys around the league would talk about. That he crazy work ethic, which I which I want to ask you about. But but just in terms of the fact that he didn't really go out in public much during that stretch. So what did I you guys do go. for fun? Not normal. Yeah, you can't. I remember a chef. Um, we were in San Francisco. We went to lunch, uh, dinner, and a chef was like, "Oh, Kobe, blah 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 blah." We went up you know, $50, whatever, $100 plate, place, really nice place, and chef comes out, and he's like, oh, Kobe, I'm a huge fan, but I want them Warriors to win, well, Kobe's like, I'm not going to eat this plate, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know, what, are you trying to poison me, like, that's, that stuff has come out and happened <laughs> to players, or, like, guys have gotten sick off of the other, but that's how the type of life you live after you get that big, right? You can't True. go out. So he so he really didn't eat it? No. Nah, he just left the plate right there. Like I I don't know. You're a boy you just said you were a Warriors fan, yet you're a Kobe fan, but how do I know, you know, you want your war you could have a fifty you could have a thousand dollar bet on the game. I can't trust you on that. You know what I mean? Yeah, wow. I do. That's, I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah I get so it. So you gotta have the as that mindset you how? Why do you want to go out? It's 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 sad in that sense of like, there's you gotta have there's trust issues around, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody's trying to everybody's trying to get a hold of you and a piece of you. So that uh, that's where I feel kind of isolated himself even more. I'm I'm learning that now, being you know older. I'm like I don't need as many friends. Forget all that. That's that stuff. That stuff is. That's packing. That makes, you know, and I learned a lot from him picking up some of those habits. He isolated himself. He honed on his craft, and that's what he, and that's what made him so great. Who who were the different groups of guys that were going out to dinner together on that team? Uh, Nash, one of my biggest favorite teammates, and he's still playing now, and, and I understand why. He's, cause he's such a great guy, Ed Davis. He's an extraordinary human being, and um, I love We'd always go get uh, dinner together. Chris Kamen, another guy I play, and we'd always get lunch and all our dinner. You, you want to hang out with your teammates, the more chemistry you can build off the court, the better the team gets, I feel. Well, building chemistry with Chris Kamen, you guys went in with uh, Tim DeFrancesco and got a cow together? Yeah. I'm actually looking to buy a cow right now, to be honest with you. Oh, really? 
Yeah, man, that's cheaper than going to the store every day. I'll let you know that right now. Buy a cow, that'll last you a full year if you need to, depending on how much steak you eat. So, so I know you guys buy this thing just for the purpose, obviously, of, of eating it. It's not like you name it and then cut it up and do a bunch of parts. I'll name it's it a... anyways. It doesn't oh. matter. That doesn't okay. Me. Okay. Yeah. I respect no that. I respect that. So, but I know at that time too, that, that you're, that, uh, Tim, your strength and conditioning coach was, was actually just transforming your body at the same time. So like it, it made headlines as you, you and Chris came in buying a cow. I mean, that's, that's awesome right there anyway, but just then the idea that it actually was completely changing sort of how you ate and, and, and how you were working on your body. The wild part though, as I was diving into it, Chris came in was like, really into what he put in his body though oh he was obsessive about it almost too obsessive where he'd feel bad if he had a cookie or stuff like that trust me it got overboard but he he knew that's why when i'd go get dinner with him i'd always order dessert i'd always order dessert and then he'd be like <laughs> damn i got he'd be like damn all right let me see the dessert menu and then i'd make him eat some kind of so where did, where did the cow live? Um, did you get milk? Did you get milk from the cow? When did you decide no, to end, end up butchering the cow? cow? How did it work? No, I didn't do any of all that. Now I'm I'm looking at my neighbor's pigs. I got a neighbor up here that I'm looking to buy a live pig and do that old deal. But um, no, nah, it was a, uh, a farm that we knew it was grass-fed beef, and uh, we looked into where it came from, and then we all put in. I think. Tim and I split a half, and then Chris got a full or a, a, a full half. So, yeah, man, that's a lot of beef. I had to buy a deep freeze for it. Oh wow! Wait, so, all right, so then, how long after you owned the cow did did you end up getting the meat? Man, I think there's so many cows in freezers right now. You can go get one yourself, man. <laughs> it's so easy. You can go get one today. I'm telling you, you'll be all right. You don't have to wait long. I know a couple of butchers up here. If you need some cow, let me know. Yeah, I'm going to need a bigger New York City apartment. for a, a New York City apartment, you can't get a, a second uh, a second refrigerator. There's, know, there's nowhere to put it. Just, yeah, you get cool, man. Just get a good hook, a couple hooks, and open your window. It's so cold over there. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> back, back, back to the Lakers. That year. And it was such a wild rookie year. And it's so crazy that the team hasn't made the playoffs since. And that Dwight is back in that uniform after going through what, what happened that year. What, where were you? How did you find out that Mike Brown was fired and Mike D'Antoni was the new head coach? So Bernie Bickerstaff was the coach for five games between Mike Brown. Yep. And so they just brought us in and said, after four games, I believe, and they said Mike wasn't doing the job. And that's when you realize this is a business and, you know, you can't, can't feel, can't feel, you can, you know, you don't want anybody to lose their job, but at the same time, you've got to, with, with basketball and athletics, you got to have to have a short memory in that sense. You can't hold on to things. Otherwise the next play is going to come up and how are you going to react? So I think that's how I've kind of trained my life in that sense. And I look at that whole situation like, okay, what's what's the next what's the next play? And Bernie Bickerstaff did a good job. I think we were four and one with Bernie, the best record, Lakers record. 
And then, um, what? Bernie, and then uh, Dan Tony came, and we we made the we we climbed into the playoffs. That was the craziest thing. When when Bernie was the head coach, was was there talk amongst the players like who who we wanted to be the next head coach? Did did some of the guys or did Kobe want? Bickerstaff to to stay on and be the head coach. Were you guys talking about Mike D'Antoni or, or others? I, I was just trying to make sure I stayed on the team. I was on a non-guarantee at that time, so and I was on a one-year okay. deal, so I really didn't have time to gossip, chit chat. You know, I was focused on just doing my job and being there, and just not really getting involved with everybody's politics. Did you sort of get a sense that it was just? incredibly different even for an NBA squad because I imagine there's just so much adjustment anyway you're going from a college team obviously a successful one and a successful program that Mark Fuse run but like all of a sudden it's the Lakers I mean I remember at the time I was at ESPN and during that season I I know and I've talked about this that I'm in meetings pitching I show ideas and stuff and telling these guys all right hey we got to talk about the Spurs they've won 12 straight and they're like oh no we Lakers who, you know, at the time you guys are struggling. They're like, no, no, it's got to be all Lakers or else our bosses are going to be mad. And that was the ESPN approach. So like as a player, as you talk about on a non-guaranteed first year in the league, like did you have a sense as to how, even as an NBA story, how unique this was? Well, just yeah, it was an unbelievable. Like my thing is I was like, especially going into summer league, I got to make this team. If I make this team, then guess what? We're winning the championship, and then to not be as successful on paper uh, on paper when we look successful, but not to actually have our record show what we could be, that was frustrating, really frustrating. So I don't know. I I look at that as what an experience, and it made you definitely turn off ESPN. I definitely didn't watch ESPN a couple of years in my life for sure because of that. But um, yeah, what man. What a blessing! I can't say anything negative about it. To be honest with you, what what's it like seeing Dwight back in a Laker uniform? Well, he's skinnier. That's for damn sure, boy. He doesn't need he doesn't need anything. He looks he's done something to change his body. But I'm happy, man. I'm happy that he's really just been able to play, and he seems like he has a new energy, a new like aura about him of how he's playing. So I just kind of I just kind of root for him and I hope he can get a championship and finish his career out with a chip. What what was the aura like at the time when, when he was there, when you were there? He just he was just that back injury just held him back. He wasn't jumping as high. You could tell he was in pain. Um and it was you could see his frustration and, and also, you know, he he's coming from being the the man on Orlando to not saying second fiddle, but uh, he had to, you know, sit next to Kobe on that sense, right? Kobe, this is Kobe's team, no matter where, well, whoever is LeBron, granted, you came here, but you say it'll never be, it's, it's always going to be Kobe's team. I I heard you on a, an interview with Big Boy in LA doing a radio show, and you said that Kobe would test test your manhood. Um, and I think speaking as for the group, not just you individually, I'm sure. Um, I'm just curious what what that was like early on in terms of him testing you, and then also just 
you know, legendary stories about his work ethic um, that, that I've heard. I'm curious as to any stories you may have about seeing him at the gym at 6 a.m. Um, just the manhood. I remember setting a mean screen on him. Not like, it wasn't a dirty screen, but I, I, I knew I hit him. I wanted to hit him hard, too. And, and uh, I hit him. And he goes, all right, Chuck, that, that's your last screen right there. And I was like, whatever, man. And so I went to go set the screen on him again. And he just, like, straight up, like, he got through the screen, but he did it in a slick way. Like, you know you're a veteran when you get away with this. No one really thought. But he gave me, like, a little uppercut in my stomach, knocked the wind out of me. And, like, I still had to play. And, like, I couldn't bitch about it. What are you going to do, right? You just got to fight through it. And, uh, and I remember that was kind of his test to see if I was going to quit and stop. And he got through the ball screen. And he, the play was going on. But that was his way to see how, like, how he tested me. And for the guys who worked out with him, you have to be patient. That's the thing I've heard. When guys work out with him, you will do the same shot for an hour. Consistently the same shot, like jab, shot, jab, shot. You'll do that for an hour. Just, that's it. Your mind where, like, you can't get distracted. You got to know, okay, I'm doing this for a reason because you will consistently work that one shot over and over and over again until until that hour is up and then you'll make a another shot where he's just doing the same shot on the same place on the court over and over and over again. Yeah, speaking of Kobe in practice, were you there that day when that like, Kobe yeah. walked out of practice and he yeah, said to Mitch Kupchak, like you gotta yes yeah, so you gotta get this right? Like what wh- what happened? He just came out, he he was in his his way that day. He was mad you know, you kind of got to know what pick choose when to talk to Kobe on those type of days. And uh, he was just fired up, man. He wanted to win. And we weren't winning. And he just needed to, he needed to you know, set the tone early for the next game. So, so, then, so then speaking of that with, because you guys, you, you rattled off a bunch of your former teammates. And I'm, and I'm sure that not that Kobe didn't get along with all the teammates. Give me your... Give me your all-character team. Jordan Hill, Nick Young, Boozer. I would say myself. <laughs> uh, I would definitely say myself. And oof. Sorry to do five. Um, oof. Uh, it all depends. It all, uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, meta? Meta, yes. Good call. That is a good call for sure. I definitely put Meta in there. What's something about Meta the rest of the world doesn't know? How great of a human being he is. He's a great human being, and like he's he's a great dad. He's like like people just envision him having this crazy side. Now we all be that, and he kind of shows it to an extreme, but at the same time. Hey, he's just a great human being. And I, like, here's his issue. And I always have an He still talks to me now, but he gives, he gives his number out all the time that he has to change his number all the time. So all these <laughs> random calls, 
from these random numbers, and I'm like, who the hell is, and it'll be meta. He's like, what's up, man? What's going on? How you been? Blah, blah, blah. I'm, I'm in your town. Whatever, you know, but that's just the, the type of guy he is. Just a genuinely great human being. And, and how about how about Nick Young? Nick is just wild. That's, he's a good dude, man. Um, he's just, he, it's like a little 16-year-old in a 30-year-old man's body, but I don't even know, like, I can't even put it. To, he just, he lives life. He lives life and he enjoys it. You know, he's had some tragic stuff happen to him throughout his lifetime and losing brothers and stuff. So he takes every opportunity to enjoy himself and enjoy life. And that's why you got to give him credit. Well, and, then, and you said you said Jordan Hill right away. Jay Hill, Jay Hill had this challenger, man. And this R2, Audi R2. It was so loud you could hear it outside the practice facility. Oh, <laughs> oh uh, here. That's all I need to say about J. Hill. J. Hill was a great man. J. Hill, he was like how he played, man. Like, just played hard. He lived hard. He played hard. He was great I love that guy, too. You talk about enjoying life and, and all these guys. Obviously, there's so many memories of you and the bench performances and stuff. And obviously you bought into the whole thing. I know um, great quote from, from Phil Handy, your, your player development coach. He said, he's real explosive off the bench, uh, which, which I loved, but you know, you start getting featured on sports center for it and they're throwing you on highlights and all of that. And guys are telestrating about all your different bench moves. And, 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 and I'm curious as to where all that stuff came from, but I was, I'm just, more curious like what that was like in terms of getting attention for for the dancing and all and all that what was your take on it while everyone started to well, figure out you uh, were doing this you know how long an nba game is bro and especially if you ain't playing you know how many distractions and stuff is going on and uh, i had to do something to keep myself engaged that was my way of keeping myself engaged in games because there's so much going on you can start looking up in the stands if you want or see whoever is coming at the game and, you know, kind of be starstruck and looking at, oh, Denzel or, you know, Paul Stanley's at the game or, you know, it just all these different types of people coming to games to the point where you, there's so many distractions. For me, I needed to do that just stay engaged. I'm very energetic constantly, so for me, I just needed to focus on the game and that's what kept me With all with all those celebrities around, do you remember one of your one of your first oh shit look at look at this type of moment with celebrities? Maybe not even just on the floor, but the LA scene itself. Um, probably we got to a point where it got numb. It was just another person over time. But um, Paul Stanley from Kiss. Why not? That's my daughter's favorite band. So. Yeah, that's probably a big one. I was pretty starstruck on that one. Um, Jack Black, he, uh, it was just so many people. And you got to talk with them. Like, uh, my wife told me Adam Sandler was playing with our son in the family room. Like, <laughs> no way. Was that? Yeah, it's <laughs> surreal, man. You know? So that, that, whole, that whole side, definitely. But, guys, I don't mean to run 
really shoot them quick. All right, let's do um, real quick. I've got one. Your your memories from Kobe's final game. Everyone being like, let's give him the ball and see what he does. That was really that was uh, ideal. Like, like it's Kobe, man. Go out shooting. Go out with a band, and that's what he did. And he played pretty damn good, and it was just a surreal moment. And I'm uh, now. I got to see Kobe. I was there for Kobe last game, you know. So I couldn't. I couldn't ask for a better experience. And listen, I just want to thank you. I know normally our last question to to any guest is, if you could have one player that you played with or against forever to reject the screen, go ISO for a bucket in a must win situation. Uh, I'm assuming you're going with Kobe. Yeah, of course, fellas. Come on, man. I'm glad you guys said it. Well, I, so, yeah, no, no question, Kobe. Well, really appreciate it, Rob. Thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, enjoy your time with those kids, man. You you were awesome. Appreciate it. No, thank you, guys. I appreciate the opportunity and the time, man. I wish you guys nothing but the best. You as well. You too. Oh, bye-bye. So it is wild. So a, a bench player for four years with the Lakers, the last overall pick, and they don't call it Mr. Irrelevant in the NBA, just, you know, the last pick in the draft. And, hey, so was Isaiah Thomas. So that rookie year is – and I wonder if – I wonder if everybody would tell the same stories or if people would have different stories, but the, the, but the Dwight, Steve Nash, firing Mike Brown, Mike D'Antoni comes in, Kobe – that's the Kobe Achilles injury. And then also Jerry Buss died that year. So much happened in Rob in, in Robert Sacre's rookie year. But as he said, he was just focused on trying to get his next contract because he was on a one-year non-guaranteed deal. So he couldn't focus on all this craziness that was going on around him. Yeah, and I was fascinated about the idea that it was unique to him, but of course it was going to be. It's it's unique for any rookie as they're trying to find their way and where to live, how to be a professional, which vets to attach yourself to, who's going to talk to you, who isn't, who do you link up with? And that time, it's it's crazy now to think back. It's got to be one of the most famous teams to never accomplish anything. I mean, we we talk about, and I don't mean I don't mean that time period, that section, the Kobe Lakers, I'm talking about that specific season, his rookie year, where, um, you know, Steve Nash has talked about that period saying, you know, he, he sort of feels bad for his time with the Lakers because he just couldn't get himself healthy. And that if that's a healthy Steve Nash and he thought he would be, like, who knows what they look like? That's unbelievable what they could have potentially accomplished. But once Steve Nash's injury played a part and trying to get him on the floor and the coaching change, it was sort of a wrap. Like it was just never going to get right. But Kobe's final game was ended up being Sacre's final game, right? That was the final game in 2016. It, yeah. Cause Sacre didn't play in that game, but that was, but that was Kobe's final game. So, and, and, and I know Robert had to run, so maybe we'll ask him, another time that was he ever thinking, was it ever in his head that all right, all this attention's on Kobe. This is, you know, Kobe Bryant's final game that, wow, this is, this is my last ever NBA game. 
Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. I'm looking it up now. Rob played the game before that. So Mm -hmm. the 81st game of the season was at OKC before the Utah game. And uh, Rob had 11 and 8. And to think that that's your final game is an 11 and 8 game. And then, of course, the the infamous Kobe Kobe game uh, in 2016 when he goes off for uh, 60 points. It's just still that that whole scene and everything was just it's still remarkable to think about 50 shots 21 threes and uh sacre gets a uh dnp but yeah it's a, a just a you know it's remarkable i think it's cool though that we talk about a, a, we talk to a lot of different guys on this podcast and they approach basketball with a lot of different stories and perspectives and i gotta say it's just fascinating to hear from him because he just had just a a different kind of road than than we typically hear about and even that what he said there at the tail end of the pod where he's talking about we think about the glory of playing in the nba and how exciting it is and he's playing for the lakers of all places you know you're you're playing an incredible arena you're playing with you know crowded arena every night all these celebrities and yet still if you're not playing after a while it's almost overstimulation like the idea that you got to stay engaged and focused. And that was part of the thing for his, his sideline stuff. And it's kind of a really cool perspective. You don't think about things in those terms all the time. Mm -hmm. You think being an NBA player would just be fun all the time. And it's obviously not the case. No, I guess it was for Jordan Hill. It seemed like, (laughs) and it seemed like it was fun for Jordan Hill, but I think maybe that's a question. Maybe you can call him or text him so that we can get the answer. Maybe for next Tuesday's podcast, just ask him, did you have any, thought in your mind going into that game that this was also going to be your final game all right so that's rejecting the screen the going iso edition which we do every thursday long form edition with any number of folks who have touched the game and they're oftentimes evergreen so you can go back and listen and the and the timestamp doesn't matter ryan russillo peter vesey howard beck richard jefferson sam mitchell doug gottlieb and robert sacrain just this past week was nate duncan from the hollinger and duncan podcast here on Locked on as well. You can follow Adam on Twitter at Naismith Lives. I'm at Noah Kozlov, C O S L O V. Share the podcast. Just get it out there. Spread the word, and we really do appreciate it. Adam, thanks, Bell. You are the best.